PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the CrickCast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crick offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Crick. Hello, this is Becky Craig, and I'm delighted to talk to you about the April issue of Physical Therapy Journal. We have 12 articles that we're going to look at today with a great variety of topics. So again, I hope there's something for you in this April issue. The first article is entitled Cognitive Treatment of Illness Perceptions in Patients with Chronic Low Back Pain. This is a randomized control trial, and it is multidisciplinary and multi-institutional. There are occupational therapists, physical therapists, and physicians from the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. The concept is really to look at the impact that the person's perception of illness might have on their outcome. I really encourage you to read the introduction where they talk to us about the self-regulation model, which is the foundation for the illness perception questionnaire that's used in this investigation. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to go back and review the May 2011 issue. The editorial written there is Psychosocial Influences on Low Back Pain, Why Should You Care? by Chris Main and Stephen George. That whole issue emphasizes the role that psychology plays in treatment of persons with low back pain. And again, the need for information to go both ways. The next manuscript is entitled A Global View of Direct Access and Patient Referral to Physical Therapy, Implications for the Profession. This is a paper that's done by two persons who are associated with the World Confederation of Physical Therapy, both at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, Tracy Burry and Emma Stokes. This paper looks at direct access around the world. There are 106 member organizations of the World Congress of Physical Therapists, which comprises about 350,000 physiotherapists worldwide. The authors were interested in determining the role that direct access played around the world. Physiotherapists were absolutely in favor of direct access. The National Physical Therapy Associations and the public were also very much in support of the concept However, the percentage of policymakers and physicians who supported direct access were both low. We'll turn from health policy implications to an intervention trial entitled The Effect of Externally Cued Training on Dynamic Stability Control During the Sit-Stand Task in People with Parkinson's Disease. This is a study that is led by Tanvi Bhatt from the University of Illinois in Chicago with collaborators from Hong Kong Polytechnic University in Hong Kong. The authors do a very nice job describing the two phases, how one prepares to actually stand and then executes the movement, talks about the persons with Parkinson's disease over-preparing, which leads to a problem when they stand up and a fear of falling. So I think that the authors have done a nice job outlining a potential intervention that certainly needs additional research. The next study is entitled, A Therapeutic Alliance Between Clinicians and Patients Predicts Outcome in Chronic Low Back Pain. 
Paolo Ferreira and his colleagues from the University of Sydney and the George Institute in New South Wales and Australia really emphasize the therapeutic alliance. And the therapeutic alliance, another term that's been used for it is working alliance. It's the relationship between the clinician and the patient. I'm going to read some of their words so that we're all understanding what the authors were investigating. Therapeutic alliance refers to the sense of collaboration, warmth, and support between the client and therapist. You may not be surprised, but the therapeutic alliance predicted outcome for persons with low back pain. That's a powerful conclusion, I think, from the study. Obviously, it's the beginning of a long series of investigations that will follow, but I think the influence of the relationship between physical therapists and their client or patient is really profoundly reinforced in this study. The next paper is entitled The Accuracy of Physical Therapists' Early Predictions of Upper Limb Function in Hospital Stroke Units. This is the EPOS study. This is a really interesting paper, but I can't tell you too much because there will be an excellent podcast discussion led by Jim Carey, editorial board member, assisted by Dorian Rose, and then the second author on this paper, Erwin Van Wigen, will also participate in the discussion. So please tune into that discussion podcast. The next study is entitled Comparative Utility of the Best Test, Mini Best Test, and Brief Best Test for Predicting Falls in Individuals with Parkinson's Disease. This is a cohort study. The first author is Ryan Duncan, and the data that were used for the study all came from a large database that's part of the Movement Disorder Center at WashU. The purpose of the test is to examine persons and determine what their likelihood of falling is. And I believe that the authors have done an excellent job with their brief best test. They develop a test that can be administered in a much shorter period of time. I believe they say about 10 minutes, and it requires much less equipment. I think editors-in-chief always have some sort of a bug, and my bug is that I really don't find sensitivity and specificity statistics very useful. It makes much more sense to me to understand likelihood ratios. What is the likelihood that this test will improve or not improve outcomes or predict outcomes? And so I urge those of you who only read the abstract to please look at Table 3, where both positive and negative likelihood ratios are listed. The next paper is entitled The Six-Minute Walk Test in Chronic Pediatric Conditions, a Systematic Review of Measurement Properties. The study was conducted by Bart Bartels and his colleagues from Utrecht. The Six-Minute Walk Test is a well-known test. It was developed originally to look at outcomes in persons with compromised respiratory conditions. And so there was an assumption that the six-minute walk test or how far can you walk in six minutes was a measure for aerobic capacity. Certainly the first take-home message from this article is that there are not enough data to indicate that the tool itself is reliable across all the different chronic pediatric populations. Also, the construct that underlies the purpose of the test is not clear in these kinds of different patient populations. The next paper is entitled Physical Exercise for Patients Undergoing Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplantation, 
systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. The authors are Inga Van Heren and her colleagues from Radboud University in the Netherlands. Because I'm not familiar, I was surprised that the authors were able to identify 11 studies that included persons with cancer who had had stem cell transplantation and that exercise looked at endurance, resistance, training, activities of daily living, stretching, etc. So that was my ignorance and I was delighted to see how many studies had been done with a bottom line indicating that the effect of exercise on such outcome measures as quality of life and fatigue was very positive. So there's certainly a role for physical therapy and exercise to play with this population. The next paper is entitled Measuring Verbal Communication in Initial Physical Therapy Encounters. The first author is Lisa Roberts. The authors use some interesting methodology. One is a validated tool called the Medical Communications Behavior System. The other tool that the authors utilized is something called Synote, which is synchronized annotation. And this is a web-based hypermedia application. So I think for those of you who are interested in qualitative work, there's new methodology, at least from my perspective, that may warrant your review. This, again, along with the Therapeutic Alliance paper, really emphasized the need for us to think about what it is we're communicating and how we're communicating with our patients. I also think it's important for educators to ensure that our students understand the importance of their communication skills. The next paper by Nienka DeVries and her colleagues is entitled Evaluative Frailty Index for Physical Activity, and the acronym is EFIP or EFIP a reliable and valid instrument to measure changes in level of frailty. The authors are sharing the first stages in the development of a new instrument. So look for the next manuscripts that come forward from these authors. This is stage one, and I look forward to a larger reliability test and then finally looking at the responsiveness of this instrument. The next paper by Hilary Gunn and her colleagues from Plymouth University is entitled Identification of Risk Factors for Falls and Multiple Sclerosis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So the authors looked at a number of articles and tried to come up with factors. And of course, they, as often happens in systematic reviews, didn't come up with the final answer. But they did indicate that there were some risk factors. One is balance. Second is cognition. Third is the use of an assistive device. And fourth is having progressive MS. The final paper by Richard Proust from McGill University in Montreal, Canada, is a perspective. And the perspective is entitled Utilizing Generalizability Theory to Develop Clinical Assessment Protocols. Generalizability theory provides a method to calculate the reliability of data based on a range of assessment protocols. So the goal is to allow the clinician to determine whether or not the minimal detectable change is relevant for their own population. Now, this is a complicated paper to read, so I think the article should appeal most to investigators who are coming up with their methods and interested in generalizability of their results to other populations. They might consider what he's proposing compared to what they're traditionally doing. 
do I know enough to be able to say, yep, we should take generalizability theory over traditional? Not at this point, but I think his arguments are really well made. And with that, I'm going to close and say, have a great month. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.